Welcome back to Ghosts of Arlington, and thank you for joining me for episode 88, A Marine in the European Theater of Operation, Part 1. There are times while doing research for this podcast that I come across someone's story that is so impressive, I'm surprised that it hasn't already been made into a major motion picture, or at the very least that I had not previously heard of the individual. An example of this that immediately jumped to mind is Army Staff Sergeant Jumpin' Joe Byerly, the only soldier to fight in both the U.S. and Soviet armies in World War II. See episodes 27 through 30. I'm adding today's Ghost of Arlington to that list, Marine Corps Colonel Pierre Ortiz, Peter to his friends, whose life story reads as if it were a Hollywood script, which, ironically, is where he ended up. But more on that later. Pierre Julian Ortiz was born in New York City on July 5, 1913 to a French-born Spanish father and a Swiss-born American mother. His father was a successful art dealer and prominent in the French publishing industry which allowed the family to live in comfort. After an affluent childhood spent in Southern California, Ortiz's father sent him and his older sister Ines to a French boarding school following the Great War to prepare them for either a European or U.S. university education. Ortiz had an aptitude for languages, and by the time he graduated from high school, this polyglot could speak ten, many of them fluently, including English, Spanish, French, Italian, Portuguese, German, and Arabic. He attended one year of college at the University of Grenoble and made good grades, but quickly grew bored with academia. At age 19, this young man who loved adventure novels dropped out of school to have an adventure of his own. He traveled to Marseille and enlisted in the French Foreign Legion, an elite military force originally consisting of foreign volunteers in the pay of France. When his father learned what he had done, he tried to buy Ortiz out of the Legion, but his son would have none of it. At this time, the French Foreign Legion had about 30,000 soldiers in its ranks. It was also at this time that the Legionnaires resumed the practice of wearing the distinct white kepi, the military hat with a round, flat top and visor that usually slopes toward the front. At various times, kepis in a variety of colors were the standard headgear in the French military, but today, it is often just the French Foreign Legion that continues to wear them. Ortiz found adventure fighting as a legionnaire in the Moroccan Rift in North Africa. He rose through the ranks quickly, becoming a corporal after a year of service, and then a sergeant just two years later. 
Shortly after that, he was an acting lieutenant commanding an armored car squadron. When his enlistment was up, Ortiz was offered a permanent lieutenant's commission and French citizenship for his service to France, but declined both, opting instead to be discharged and returned to the United States in 1937. When acting Lieutenant Ortiz left the Legion, he had been highly decorated with a lot of awards I can't pronounce, but his medals did include the Croix de Guerre, the Croix de Combattance, and the Médaille Militaire. He had also been wounded in 1933, shortly after being sent to the Rift. He returned to Southern California had to make amends with his mother, who had been worried sick while he was off fighting, and became a technical advisor in Hollywood. For fans of the genre, it is well known that military veterans work in Hollywood trying to help big-budget movies accurately depict combat and military life. Some of the better known of these advisors are Vietnam veteran Captain Dale Dye, who served 20 years in the Marine Corps, fought in the Tet Offensive and earned a Bronze Star with Valor and three Purple Hearts, and the late Marine Corps Staff Sergeant R. Lee Ermey, also a Vietnam veteran who was later granted the honorary rank of Gunnery Sergeant by the Commandant of the Marine Corps. Ermey served for 11 years before being medically retired. Ermy himself is a ghost of Arlington and will likely get an episode of his own at some point in the future. With that said, I was not personally aware that veterans were trying to help ensure accurate portrayal of combat in cinema as far back as the late 1930s. Ortiz's time in Hollywood came to an end in 1939, when the German army blitzkrieged its way across Poland. Unable to stand idly by, Ortiz hopped a boat back to France, hoping to rejoin the French Foreign Legion. Before making it to Europe, his transport was sunk by a German U-boat. He was rescued from the water by a passing luxury liner, finally got back to the continent, and found the nearest Foreign Legion recruiter. He re-enlisted in October 1939 and received a battlefield commission to lieutenant in May 1940. Ortiz was in France when the Germans turned their attention on that country and was soon in the thick of World War II. In June 1940, during the Battle of France, now Lieutenant Ortiz learned that a store of gasoline had not been destroyed before his men were forced to withdraw. Not wanting the petrol to fall into Nazi hands, he returned to the site on a motorcycle, rode through the German camp now located there, blew up the gasoline dump, and was on his way back to friendly lines when he was shot in the hip. The bullet nicked his spine on its way out of his body and left him temporarily paralyzed. That is how he was when the Germans took him prisoner. During his second stint in the Legion, he earned a second Croix de Guerre and a second Croix de Combattance. It seems that captivity didn't suit him. After 15 months and several failed escape attempts as a POW, Ortiz managed a successful escape and made his way back to the United States through neutral Portugal. 
He was debriefed by Army and Navy intelligence officers, and the Army promised him a commission, which he was happy to accept. But after several delays in processing his paperwork, he got fed up and on June 22, 1942, Ortiz enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps. One solid, universal piece of advice offered to military recruits the world over is that when you show up for your basic combat training, try not to stand out from the other recruits. You don't want to do anything that will make your drill sergeants or drill instructors take special notice of you. But Ortiz was no ordinary Marine recruit and couldn't help but stand out. By this time, he had five years of military service, more than some of his drill instructors, his DIs. He stood out from his fellow recruits even more when he donned his service uniform for the first time and insisted on wearing his medals. New recruits haven't done anything to earn medals yet. Sure, if they join in a time of war these days, they will receive a National Defense Service Medal, but that wasn't established until 1953, so no one at basic training during World War II would even have that. His DIs balefully noticed that he had a chest full of military decorations. After insisting that he was indeed authorized to wear the awards, the DIs sent their concerns up the chain of command where they landed on the desk of decorated World War I veteran Colonel Lewis Jones, who was at that time chief of staff at the recruit depot. Jones verified Ortiz's story and then wrote a letter to the Commandant of the Marine Corps explaining the situation and enclosed an application for Ortiz to receive a commission. The letter reads in part, Private Ortiz has made an extremely favorable impression upon me. His knowledge of military matters is far beyond that of a normal recruit instructor. I am glad to recommend Ortiz for a commission. In my opinion, he has the mental, moral, professional, and physical qualifications for the office for which he has made application. On August 1st, Ortiz was commissioned a second lieutenant with a date of rank retroactive to July 24, 1942, two days after he enlisted. Initially, 2nd Lieutenant Ortiz was assigned as an assistant training officer at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Two months later, he was sent to the New River Parachute Training School, also at Lejeune. Having previously completed parachute training with the Foreign Legion and already having more than 100 jumps under his belt, Ortiz took his re-education with good humor, later saying, The Legion had its way and the Marine Corps had the right way. I never minded jumping. Airplane travel always made me sick, so I was happy to jump out. In the wake of the successful Allied landings in French Northwest Africa during Operation Torch, Owing to his language skills and Legionnaire's experience in the region, Ortiz was promoted to captain and assigned to the OSS. I don't have much more to say about the Office of Strategic Services right now, suffice it that the OSS was the precursor to today's CIA. 
However, I will have more to say about it beginning two episodes from now, when I begin talking about William Donovan, the father of the OSS. Ortiz arrived in Morocco on January 13, 1943. Officially, he was the Assistant Naval Attaché and Marine Corps Observer in Algiers. His real assignment was a member of an OSS team working with Britain's Special Operation Executive, or SOE, along the Tunisian border as part of Operation Brandon. His orders were to find out everything he could about the enemy, just the kind of assignment he relished. In his 1976 book, War Report of the OSS, the official history of OSS operations in World War II, Kermit Roosevelt Jr., TR's grandson, wrote, Participation in this British operation consisted of the first OSS experience in sabotage and combat intelligence teams in front areas and behind enemy lines that the jobs actually done by the handful of OSS men who joined the SOE Tunisian campaign were not typical of future activities, was due as much to the exigencies of the battle situation as to the misunderstanding of their function by the British and American army officers whom they served. In other words, instead of collecting intelligence and conducting sabotage, the teams were sent on reconnaissance missions and ordered to find and kill Germans. In February, Ortiz was in Gafsa when the Battle of Kesserine Pass was launched. During the action, he literally found himself traveling all over the battlefield. He witnessed the panic flight of the inexperienced American soldiers during the opening hours of the German offensive, briefly fought with a British armored reconnaissance unit, then linked up and fought with elements of the American 1st Armored Division. When he crossed paths with an old legionnaire friend who was now a captain, Ortiz attached himself to his friend's unit and fought a desperate action near Pichon. In March, he was given a series of covert deep penetration recon missions. One such mission almost cost him his life. After setting up base camp, Ortiz snuck off alone in search of enemy tanks just before midnight. It had been raining for three days and his progress was hampered by knee-deep mud. Just as he was about to turn back, a burst of automatic rifle fire shattered his right hand and wounded him in the leg. As Ortiz fell to the ground, he spotted a machine gun and vehicle about 30 yards ahead. Rising to one knee with his good left hand, which happened to be his off hand, he threw a Mills grenade that fell short and then a petard grenade, probably a Mark 74 sticky bomb, that scored a direct hit. Avoiding rifle fire, and despite the loss of blood, all while suffering from shock, Ortiz managed to crawl back to his base camp and with his team's help, make it back to friendly lines. During his convalescence, Ortiz was airlifted to Washington, D.C., where he wrote a detailed report of his experience for OSS Commander Colonel William J. Donovan.
After reading the report, Donovan wrote across the top of the first page, Very interesting. Please re-employ this man as soon as possible. I'm going to pause Peter Ortiz's story here for now. We'll pick it back up next week and see that the OSS did exactly that. They put Ortiz back to work ASAP, jumping with a small team deep inside German-occupied France with orders to stir up as much trouble for the Nazis as possible. If you need more Ghosts of Arlington content in your life, there are pictures related to every episode on the website www.ghostsofarlingtonpodcast.com. You can help others learn about the podcast by leaving a 5-star rating and review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you really want to make my day, refer the show to a friend. And remember, fear not death, for the sooner we die, the longer we shall be immortal.